Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Skirt, a real horror show. I'm John, and my guests today, once again, are my friends Becca. Hi, Becca. Hello. And Kelly. Hello, Kelly. Howdy. And uh, it's kind of what we promised to do. We we talked uh, in a couple episodes back about Henry James's novella, The Turn of the Screw, and the 1961 film adaptation of the same, The Innocence. We put that episode out on the eve of um, the new show, The Haunting of Bly Manor, coming out. So... This is like a big cultural thing. It's kind of fun to put the bookend on that other conversation. But yeah, we're just here to talk about Bly Manor, both as a show and in terms of how it compares to Henry James's book and maybe even just our own movie in our head that we have of this material at this point. So with that said, I guess I would just ask both of you, what did you think of the show kind of in the broadest terms? Broadly, I liked it. I think they chunked the ending, but as a whole, I thought it was like the right mood which I think we talked about how like in the hands of someone else, they'd go for a lot of like jump scares and stuff instead of that like slow build of dread. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the mood was spot on, but I, I did find the ending a little disappointing personally. In what sense? Um, I'd say it's disappointing because the thing that made the ending of the book so good was that a, a child dropped dead and then the book ends mm -hmm. and that didn't happen. Um, Miles survives. Which it sounds really, really cold to say that you're kind of upset that a child didn't die. You just wish that kid was dead. Right. I, I just, I don't. It was just such a spectacular way to end a book. You know, you don't expect children to be in danger in horror stories, um, and then it just stops. You know, that's just, just it. The, the the boy is dead and the book ends. But I was a little disappointed. Yes, that the kid didn't die, and then. Um, you know, there's this buildup of a romance between two of the female characters and then one of them fucking dies and it's just exhausting. Yeah, that's definitely a trope that gets repeated so many times. It's almost a joke at this point. Kill your gaze. Yeah, I agree that it, it was definitely a tonally different ending to not end on a scare. It kind of just ends as, you know... It's like a happy ending, but it's still kind of somber because mm -hmm. the adults remember what happened. The kids don't. But you're watching the kids go off to be happy. But you know what happened and you know what everyone lost. I still, I guess, can't decide if I liked that or not. But I, I loved the series. I mm -hmm. had absolutely no intention of watching it so quickly, especially because Hill House was so scary and made me feel so tense that I was like, I don't have it in me emotionally to do that right now. Mm -hmm. um, but then I couldn't stop watching it. It was I thought the whole series in general was great. I think that I agree with both of you in the sense that I think I, my general feeling is I really liked it or loved it and thought it was great. I also think when we get to the more book comparison part, I do have some sort of creative questions or creative disagreements, if you want to call it that, with some of the choices they made. But I felt the same way about The Haunting of Hill House, which was one of my favorite things period when it, when it came out like I just loved it so much but as a person who loved the book I also did step back and say and this will be maybe I'm going to try to stop always framing my feelings about uh, these shows based on like what I know about the books you know because I don't really think that's fair but I think sometimes there's a whole other conversation to be had about just adaptation and why make certain choices if you're going to adapt a certain thing it's one thing to change surface details it's another thing to sort of upturn the point of the thing agreed which I think in both cases they did. <laughs> I think both The Turn of the Screw and The Haunting of Hill House are bleaker, uh, colder uh, stories than either of these miniseries would indicate. Mike Flanagan, as a creator, he just likes to intertwine the human 
pathos with the scares. And I think if you're going to really tell a story that does that, you kind of do need to pay off both things. So I understand why both seasons dwell more on the sort of dynamics of the characters over the horror elements. But I, yeah, I, it would be nice to have them end in a more of a horror way, it, like with more of a punch or more of a scare or something. Um, but that's just a personal preference. We are looking at a 70 page novella that was turned into a nine hour miniseries. Mm -hmm. So obviously, like you do have to pat it. You do have to make choices, especially because the story itself is so ambiguous. You don't ever really know if the kids are possessed or not. You don't know if the governess is crazy. There's a lot. You don't know why he gets kicked out of school. Like there's a lot that you have to fill in. So I expected that. Um, but I, and I also really enjoyed the same thing with Hell House where it seems like the horror is kind of like the ghosts are there, but the horror is really kind of within it's your yeah. own trauma. It's your own mental state, that kind of stuff. And so like, you do kind of have to view these as two totally separate stories just because like, yeah, you were going to get always going to get more. Right. No, totally. You're going to get more. But I think it's just that fundamental difference in terms of like in Hill House, it's literally the difference between saying what walks in Hill House walks alone in the book versus right. the show that's like, guess what? It's not alone. What walks in Hill House is like a family that cares about each other. Yes. Does anyone want to start with maybe like a favorite uh, character or favorite, uh, you know, aspect of the show? Hannah. Oh, my God. Hannah. Absolutely. Her like standalone episode. Episode, I think it was at five was my favorite. That was so beautiful. Like the the storytelling of that episode was so beautiful. It made me think of uh, the Twin Peaks revival series and how a lot of that was hard to watch because it's just hard to watch anything David Lynch does. Mm -hmm. But it just felt like art. That episode was incredible. It yeah. just was so jarring. I couldn't take my eyes away. Technically speaking, it kind of reminded me of the one episode of Hill House where it was kind of like the long duration takes. I believe that's episode six. And that's the episode, where, I think, where they all come together in the funeral home. That feels like it's it's different. Yes. But also, I would say the episode before that was the episode where we find out the true story of the bent neck lady. And it was episode five, I think, too. So it's like, to me, this was like, oh, they like to do something in episode five that that tells you something about the metaphysical aspect of this story you've been watching, you know, and, and I has think has a big reveal at the end, right? Mm -hmm. A big reveal as to what a true fate of a character is. And in fact, both the bent neck lady and uh, Miss Gross or Hannah are dead with their head to one side. Bent. Their yeah. necks are bent. So I, I do think that they are <laughs> conscious of those themes. You know, it's got that same dynamic that Hill House had of you're going to see characters at different stages and you're going to sort of figure out what happened to people in between those times. But it doesn't necessarily spell it out. There's a puzzle box aspect to this show. And you get to that middle episode. There's going to be one that does. Yeah, it hits you with like, oh, shit. And so, yeah, episode five with Miss Gross, as we know her from the book. And I, lo I loved going from us talking about the book. And we were all like Miss Gross. We were like, I stand a legend. Miss Gross is great. <laughs> and then here in this show, they give Miss Gross possibly, yeah, the most affecting emotional storyline because it's heartbreaking, which a lot of the stories in The Haunting of Bly Manor are. But it's mind bending. It's like what happens to her and the way you see it play out. Out, it like answers a lot of your questions about what the other characters have been going through and really makes you feel the tragedy, not just of a lonely life, but of being trapped, sucked into this vortex at, at Bly Manor. I thought that, yeah, that was a really effective, it was creepy and it was something different because you spent the whole episode trying to figure out what the heck their predicament was. They set it up from like the very beginning. There's like, you know, something's up with her from the start. She's occasionally distracted. She's seeing like a crack. Mm -hmm. in the wall in different locations and the way that the that particular episode is filmed you kind of think maybe it's like dementia or something that's what i was gonna say because it's you know the same thing that owen was going through with his mother 
So you think that, oh, God, it's repeating himself and he loves her. And now he's, you know, going to have this other woman that he loves go through, you know, losing her memories and kind of drifting away. Yeah, I, I feel like they were really setting that up to be a misdirect. So the whole she was dead the whole time thing is kind of a blindside. I love this idea of ghosts as people who have changed to some new state and they don't know what this new state is. Nothing in their life prepared them for like being a ghost or what it means or how you act or what you, you know. So it's like the idea that you would instantly know, oh, I'm dead and I'm a ghost. I like when it's like, no, you wouldn't know that. You'd be like, wait, I'm me, aren't I? Like, wait, why can't I interact with people or why am I back in this room? And the way the characters, they were trapped in a loop and we could see it. But then when they started acknowledging they were trapped in a loop, the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. I just love that kind of stuff where I'm like, when somebody says like, oh, we're doing this one again. And you go, what the hell? Oh, God, with Flora, when she was like, wait, I was younger when this happened. <sighs> yeah. It's not just happening to Hannah, right? It's happening to her, too. That's when, yeah, it's it's really cool. And that is so well imagined. And that is nowhere in the book. None of that stuff is really in no. the book. Um, so we got to give them credit for for creating this other like mythology on top of the simplest, simplest ideas that are laid out in the, in the book. And yes, it does seem like the show sort of said we're going to pull a, a, a twist and have the children not really be, I don't know, involved in the sense that you thought that they were. They're 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 not evil kids that they, they know there's something weird going on. But yeah, the, the creepiness of the kids sort of went away as the season went on and you felt more sorry for them because they're just they're just trapped in this like everybody else is. Yeah, they can't control. uh when Peter Quint like takes over his body, like Miles murdered Hannah. We don't talk about that, but like, yeah, he, he, I don't know if he even realizes it because he was possessed too. Like Peter Quint took over his body and pushed Hannah down a well and killed her. Um, mm -hmm. So honestly, it's kind of like, that's one, I guess, nice thing about the ending is that the kids don't remember. So if Miles had any cognizance of like doing that, that that's going to require a lot of therapy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It is a small grace that they say the kids forget, but the adults remember. A character I honestly was really fascinated with, Henry Thomas doing like a posh British accent. I just love <laughs> actors acting. I loved how he inhabited that creepy version of himself. Oh my gosh. The little yeah. shit grinning monster side of him. I loved that Henry's sort of evil self just always had that, like, was taking such pleasure in his torment, you know, and, and to find out that the way that split that bifurcation of his character was created was it's almost it's a psychological thing brought on by his brother essentially cursing him um to his face like mm -hmm. i love how old world that was that like oh wow did his brother actually create a ghost by putting a curse on somebody or is this all just in henry um wingrave's mind but either way i i really enjoyed watching um Henry Thomas's sort of, you know, the the acting challenge, so to speak, of what was going on, because he also had that kind of reveal. It wasn't quite as astounding as what what Hannah was going through. But seeing what he was going through tipped you off to like, oh, here's another person who kind of has been touched by this place. And what they did with the show was really take that idea that we, we gleaned from the book that the uncle is just doesn't want any part of this. He's away. He doesn't want to go back, um, you know, and the show gives you a, a more tragic underpinning to that idea whereas in the book we read into it as he was basically just like a playboy he just wanted to like drink and go to parties and not have to raise children and to the extent that there was more to it it was like there's something creepy going on at that house that i just don't want to be close to peter quint whatever he's doing i don't want to know whereas this is like again it's, it's like a lot of things about this it takes away the fear and replaces it with sadness you know which you find at the end of this show is almost as powerful of a cinematic emotion to experience i think Maybe more. I also really love the episode that was basically setting up the reason the house is cursed. 
the origin story. Yeah. The, yeah. Um, and I, I'm already the kind of person that I really like having reasons for things. I don't mind like ambiguity. I don't mind an ambiguous ending specifically in something, but I just thought it was a really interesting story of this woman hanging on to life so hard when she should be dead. And she just hangs on to life for so long that death stops coming for her and death stops coming to the house. And because of that, anyone who dies there, basically their soul does not get taken because death gave up on coming by. I thought that was such an interesting story. It really was. Yeah, no, I also really liked it because um, kind of the same thing. Like, I mean, I do actually really love ambiguity and kind of making decisions for yourself. And I realized as we were going along that reading Turn of the Screw, I had come to my own conclusions so many times by myself. And then when they did something that um, was like antithetical to what I had decided, I was like, hey, how dare you? So at first I was like, what are they doing? I spent the first like 15 minutes of that episode being like, why are they doing this? What are they doing? And then the story was so intriguing and it was so like beautifully shot and acted that I was completely taken by it by the end of it. Um, and it's actually based off of another Henry James story, which actually a few of the things that they use to pad out the series are Henry James short stories. Right. I was going to ask if either of you knew basically what else they use from Henry James, because I saw that, you know, at the beginning, it says based on the works of Henry James, and I've never read anything right. else by him. So I was and I didn't do any research. I'm sorry. So I was wondering if either of you knew what else there was Henry James related. I was going to do a lot of research, Becca. But then <laughs> Kelly the other day said I've did some research and I was like, okay, yes. good. she can be our uh, research monkey. Like, yeah, Kelly can do all the homework. <laughs> we can just cheat off her notes. <laughs> I was going to say I have all the answers to this for you guys. I have all of the answers. Yay. But it's yeah, it is. You're right. 70 pages to nine hours. You kind of need something else, some other ideas to make it pad out. Mm -hmm. They did exactly what I was hoping they would do, which is that they would keep to the same author to kind of pad out the mythology. And I did clock that they had said, like, based on the works of Henry James in the credits, but and also, like, I, the only other thing I'd really read, and it was such a long time ago, was Portrait of a Lady, which is not horror. But I think they used elements of it in this episode that we're talking about with the, like, mythology of Bly Manor's kind of revealed. The characterization of Viola kind of reminded me of the main character from that. Someone who's kind of interested in maintaining her own independence and kind of like the whole setup where they have the, the cousin coming to the house to, like, marry one of the sisters. Like, that whole setup really reminded me of Portrait of a Lady. And that's what made me go, all right, I need to do some research. But the episode title is actually the short story it's based off of Romance of Certain Old Clothes. That's kind of the mythology, although like the sisters are switched. But for the most part, the details are kept pretty intact for that one. I've seen mixed reactions to that episode, but I really liked it. Um, I, I kind of enjoyed how it was a, a, a story within a story within a story because we have the wraparound telling us this story. And then we have this, which is like an old tale within the world of that story. So you can kind of take it with a grain of salt. But but it really did explain the uh, the horror away to some extent. Um, I think I would have been slightly uh, irritated by that if it had come earlier. But since it's eight of nine episodes, it, it didn't hurt the overall plot to, um, you know, demystify the 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 ghost the way that it did, because there's still a certain amount of story left to tell after that. And, and it really was an interesting look into 
you know, almost exactly, almost too much information, if you want to say that, about exactly what this this sort of curse on the on Bly Manor is, and exactly what's going on. Um, there, there's nothing subtle about this, but 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 it was satisfying uh, in a lot of ways. I agree. This show totally lays it on thick. This show is like operatic with its sadness and with its scares <laughs> and the music and the pacing and everything. Like it doesn't want you to miss any of that. And I really love that. But I also know that for my own purposes, something a little more ambiguous would have been fine because I would have gotten it. I would have walked away with the same goosebumps, but maybe not the same like bittersweet tear, you know? So it's just a question of what mood you want it to end on. But uh, I felt I think... similarly about um, when they kind of overly reveal the ghosts. Mm -hmm. So they continued that um, aspect from hill house where they have you know the ghosts in the background and they don't really directly reference them they're just kind of back there watching the main characters do stuff and you spot one and you're like oh my god at the end of the hall or well, that, that one looks like a plague up. doctor yeah, yeah. Yes. so <clears throat> you see the ghosts and start to recognize them and see them repeat and then you could also see them in the dolls in the dollhouse and then when they go in again to say like, oh, yes, and here is some direct shots of the plague doctor when he was younger. And here's how the plague doctor died. I thought that was a little bit too much because I, I, I liked being able to make those connections myself like, oh, that doll without the face, that's her. And that doll is this one. And um, I just feel like it's more fun to put that kind of stuff together yourself. And right. if people miss it, in my opinion, like, well, too bad for you. I guess you missed it. Mm -hmm. But it did feel like they were hammering that home way too hard. Well, that's one thing. I, I, as much as I like Mike Flanagan's movies and shows, it's like a maximalist style of storytelling or something. Just to say, <laughs> I don't want you to miss anything we thought of. Whereas other directors would say, oh, we worked really hard on this and it barely made it into the background. And I don't think Mike Flanagan would settle for that. I think he would be like, we worked hard on this and I want to put a spotlight on it. Um, but I don't think that, I can. I I think it's just a storytelling thing that we're talking about. I don't think it's a flaw in the thinking behind the thing. No. Which is where I would start to get bothered by it. I think it's more like I only need to be shown something once to get it. And so like continually like showing the plague doctor and then the child and then like I got it after the first one. Mm -hmm. In fact, you even see it happen to Peter Quint. That's how he dies. The lady of the lake kills him. So like I, I figured it out. And that was that was sudden and shocking. That was shocking. Yes. And I would also say that it was uh, the, the right amount of explanation of 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 a ghost in this house. Like um, for readers of the book, it was even kind of a satisfying closing of a loop uh, because we start off the story knowing that Peter Quint is is dead. Um, and what the show did was kind of trade the, the grisly information about what happened to Peter Quint for uh, ambiguity about whether this man who's showing up on the grounds and that uh, uh, Danny Clayton is seeing, whether he's a ghost or a real person. Sure. Um, but that's the moment where it kind of confirms what, yeah, what book readers already knew, which is that, no, Peter Quint's a ghost. And whether you liked him or not, uh, dying in mid-sentence like that is is horrific. Um, so, yeah, this moment, it, it gives us a little bit more information about the nature of the the, the faceless lady ghost and, and why you don't want to leave your room after dark. Um, <laughs> but it, it also just, I think, handles the that reveal of, okay, this is the story behind one of the ghosts. Uh, it, it handles that a bit more elegantly than some of the other reveals later on, like with the plague doctor and the little kid. Mm -hmm. Especially after watching the first series and knowing about the ghosts in the background, because it was several episodes in before I even knew that was a thing. And I only knew it was a thing because Jonathan saw it online and then we went back and looked for it. Mm -hmm. So this time around, I was fully expecting it and I'm peering behind every 
actor. You know, I'm looking <laughs> in every doorway. I'm looking for anything that could possibly be a ghost. So I'm already searching harder than I would have if I hadn't seen the first series. So I feel like at that point, like you can let our hand go a little bit. You know, you know that we know and we're doing more investigating than normal. Like we know what the game of this show is. Yeah. Is to watch every corner of the screen. Right. Waiting for something spooky. <laughs> what did you think of the kids? They were great. They were. Especially her, especially Flora. Oh my God, she was incredible. That little like, well, I think you should. It's just that sort of like precocious little kid that just says, and then she just had a little turn on a line here or there that was like, oh man, she's threatening. They definitely, that, that was a change from the book where they were definitely a lot creepier up front than they were in the book. In the book, they were just so sweet and angelic and perfect for a while before they really start doing any weird, crazy stuff. But in the show, they kind of went for it a lot quicker, which I didn't mind, but it, it, that was definitely one of the changes. Well, I think the show was going in with that idea of, okay, these are these are creepy kids in a creepy story, and we all know this formula. Whereas maybe when the book was written, and maybe even when The Innocence came out, maybe the idea of like, What's going on with these kids was more more of a mystery that you could you could hang a story on. Whereas now I think audiences, we know there's the kid who sees dead people and he's not so bad. And then there's the kid who is dead people and they're usually pretty bad. <laughs> but like there's there's all these different kinds of creepy kids that almost have become a cliche that you could roll your eyes at any time a kid walks into a horror movie at this point. So I think the show dealt with that head on by saying, let's just jump in like head first into this idea that the people in the world seem to think these kids are sweet. But we think they're a little creepy and little Miles. I really like the way this young guy, similar to the kid in the movie, is it's just like putting on the slightly more adult air, being a young man. And like the way he acts, particularly with uh, Danny in this in this show, when he's like flirting with her and stuff. Uh, and it's it like makes your skin crawl. Oh, yeah. Well, there's a line at which a woman would say, oh, it's kind of cute that this little boy has something of a crush or whatever, you know, but the way that he's it's it's that leering thing I've been talking about. Oh, uh, he like brushes her hair. Yeah. Like he does that. He goes one step too far. Every time it could be kind of cute or sweet. He does that extra thing that's like infantilizing towards her. So it's like she could be like, you're creeping me out. This is inappropriate. And I'm kind of offended because it's like, he was very condescending with her in those moments, which is totally Peter Quinn. He did a really good job, I think. Uh, taking on that 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 voice and that demeanor when he was being possessed, um, I you you absolutely I I think got Peter from that when his um, when his mood would shift when he was being embodied. Right, and of course you know that that's what's happening. We knew that was what was happening maybe from the beginning, but the show confirms it in a way that even the book and the previous adaptation didn't quite the idea that's like, Oh no, here's a moment where you can tell the change comes over the kid. And you know that Peter Quint is, is in there and you know that Peter Quint has some plan on the show, some plan to escape with Miss Jessel, but I don't know what his plan was or would have been. I mean, was the plan just to inhabit the kids and try to get out of there that way? I think so. I think they thought if they like took over the kids and like maybe drowned them, <laughs> they would get out or that was the vibe I was getting like a body for a body kind of I wonder yeah that's not really made clear though is it like it, it, it that's one no. thing Peter Quint we don't really and again I know that he's an unsympathetic guy but we don't really know how much he would have tried to leave with her and how much he thought it was like we're working class and we're it's us against the Richies you know um that felt sincere but yeah you, you think back to that scene where he's like so outrageously possessive towards her about the batter that <laughs> that Owen shared with her. And it's like, okay, this is, you know, this is bad. This is a bad relationship, but it doesn't seem to have the, 
the absolute horror attached to it that is hinted at in the book. And that's one thing the show did was it spared us any implication of like sexual abuse. But then I thought that was interesting because when we do get kind of the glimpse into his background, he was very clearly abused by his father when he was young. So they they still had that element in there. Um, But I'm not to ever be glad that that's a plot point in anything. I am glad that they shifted it. So that wasn't the main focus we were seeing out of Peter and Miss Jessel. Right. Because that I just can't imagine watching a full series of seeing that go on. And also to think of those kids being in that kind of peril, it would probably feel kind of cheap if they had if they had gone that way on the show. But I do remember feeling like, oh, there is a little bit less of that. This is just wrong feeling that I had when when reading the book. But yeah, I think that that was something I noticed right away was, oh, they're losing something like the mystery of Peter Quint in the book, I think, is really effective. And the show turns him into much more of a human monster and less of a question mark, you know, which is which is great for a nine hour series. But it is something you lose uh, by approaching the story this way. Yeah, their their two characters were a huge shift, I think. Um, And they they really don't get into much about Miss Jessel in the book, from what I remember. No, you just really get nothing. Um, But I just kind of kept operating under the assumption that they're both bad. They're both malevolent. You know, she fell under his spell, whatever, and it got her killed in some kind of way. But now she's going after Flora. So she's a bad, malevolent ghost. Right. Um, and in this series, it really is not that case at all because she really cares for the kids. She spares Flora from whatever Peter's plan is. Um, she shows up looking kind of spooky and creepy a couple times, but then as it gets revealed, she's just not that at all. She just doesn't want to be trapped as a ghost anymore, but she's also not going to ruin Flora's life or end it just to save her own self. Well, I mean, in that way, the show sort of defangs the creepiest image from the book and from the original movie, from The Innocence, which is uh, Miss Jessel standing across the lake. This, this, the show never really has that moment with the full force of like mystery and fear. You know, it's like by the time we start seeing her, we kind of know she's a tragic figure and she doesn't seem to be malevolent. She seems to be more tortured. Uh, whereas in the book, to me, just the, 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 the silence, the the lack of explanation, just someone standing there staring was such an evocative image that I thought the, the 1961 movie really nailed was like, oh, look at her there. Oh, man, that's like the image from my head when I was reading the book. Just this person standing there kind of in the daylight, but kind of in the gloom at the same time. Uh, yeah, this show just sort of said, no, we're not really going to we're not going to we're not going to try to repeat that scare. Like they repeated almost exactly the Peter Quint at the window moment, but they didn't really try to recreate the the sighting by the lake where it's like. By the time we see Miss Jessel, I feel like we're go we are fully aware some 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 supernatural shit is going on. Whereas in the book, when you get Miss Jessel, it's like, oh, another person that I've seen on the grounds who could be a spirit, but could also just be a person standing there, you know? Um, yeah, it's it's a conscious choice. I mean, I think these adaptation choices, as we talk about them, you can understand how once they were on a certain path, certain story elements would just not have worked um in the in the in the show. They remove the ambiguity of how she died right off the bat like literally like first episode i think in the scene where danny first meets with the uncle i think 
and I'm having, I'm struggling to remember at the moment, it, but they don't get into like really the minutia of how Miss Jessel died. Whereas Henry Wingrave is like, <laughs> she killed herself. Right. So yeah, right off the bat set up as a sad figure. I mean, when you actually see her death, you realize it's actually a lot more fucked up, but yeah, yeah they set the tone for that right away. They made a lot of decisions. Oh, definitely. And, and a lot of those adaptation choices are very simple, but they have a ripple effect. Like... Um, you can see how for the for the storytelling on the show, they doing something like what they do with Hannah or Miss Gross is 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 really interesting. And like we've said, is one of our favorite parts of the, the whole series. But uh, it takes away that element that Miss Gross had in the book of being so earthy and being this kind of confidant for Danny who helps her piece together the pieces of the mystery. Mm -hmm. I, I, I kind of missed some of those exchanges and some of that relationship on the show. But I think what takes its place is is really interesting, too. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of mystery solving in the book. Or, and they were kind of co-conspirators when it came to that. And they would confide in each other. And yeah, a lot of that was lost in the show. And Miss Gross in the show really did kind of ground things to say, like, well, of course the kids are weird. They've been through all this horrible stuff, their parents. And then, you know, Miss Jessel, it's nice to see them being as functional as they are basically instead of like what a bunch of weird little kids right no that's totally true because there is that exchange and she does seem like she's really trying to be like just compassion for the kids for what they've gone through and it feels very fresh i feel like in the even though i realized these were young kids even in the book somehow in the book it feels like what happened to them their parents dying all this that happened so long ago but i feel like something about seeing it dramatized and realizing it was a year ago or six months later and all these things these key events like it it's not like one of those i mean even though the the faceless lady of the lake is an old ghost a lot of the stuff we're dealing with is of much more recent vintage. You know, it doesn't it, it it's it was just a cool thing to to see those scenes play out and realize like, oh, yeah, these are kids. So they were different a year ago. But a year's I mean, I mean, we just have been through the longest year in recorded history. So maybe I shouldn't say this. But in general, <laughs> you don't think of a year as feeling like that long of a time, you know. Um, but if you're a kid, it's a pretty darn long time. And the kids are maybe the only ones who are sort of innocent enough to not quite realize how sad they are in a way they don't know yet. Like you could look at those kids as an adult and go, these kids are having a tough time and this is rough, but those kids are just day by day. She's got her creepy little dollhouse. Well, and her little, you know, talismans to try to protect people. And they've kind of got this understanding with the ghosts of um, Peter and Miss Jessel. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, they're, they're just trying to keep other people in the house safe and they're trying to work out the rules of, how to interact with these ghosts and being possessed occasionally um where yeah it they are very innocent but they it does seem to kind of age them because they're part of these like little schemes mm -hmm. and just the way that flora warns her not to go out of her room at night because they know what's going to happen um Miles cleans up the footprints, but won't explain them, but he knows what they are. Right. And they're just kind of faking their way through. Yeah. Like you said, day by day, they're just trying to get through living in this ghosty house and not really letting any other people into that world. Totally. Any other um, alive humans anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, what did you think of the, the backstory that they gave um uh, Danny in terms of the ghost that she brings with her that again it's ambiguous to me whether that was a real ghost or just something that was kind of haunting her from within because of her guilt her ghost of her uh, uh, ex-fiance or ex-boyfriend whatever you want to call it um, ex 
uh, low key stalker um, uh, uh, or high key. Uh, but like it like that goes to me. It seems analogous to the Henry Wingrave uh, doppelganger of like this is a ghost that a fractured persona has created uh, that they're haunted by. But it might not be a manifestation the same way that the ghosts of of Bly Manor are. Or how did you read into the like the difference between the ghost she brought with her versus the ghost she encountered there? Did you see that as her ghost is more psychological or did you see it as more tangible? Um, I think, well, both the um, the dead ex haunting Danny and actually uh, Henry Wingrave's doppelganger are both short stories for Henry James used to fatten up the storyline. Um, and I think both of those are, uh, I think they're the kind of the same monster. They're both manifestations of guilt. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Danny feeling responsible for the death of her ex, even though she didn't hit him with the truck. And uh, the first few times I saw him, I was like, hey, that's Elijah Wood from Sin City. Uh, so I. Yes, I thought I the didn't, same I thing right away. What if it was a Sin City verse uh, crossover? <laughs> um, but actually, you know, delving into this conversation, um, obviously, yes, like I, I understand how the guilt would manifest as like a specter for Danny. But then like if you kind of dig deeper, it's not even that she set him on the trajectory to get out of the car to get flattened by a truck. But like basically who she is as a person did that, like her true yeah. self, her her queerness, like her deepest self murdered him indirectly. But so I can see absolutely how that would haunt her and, you know set her mental state in the direction that it does. Well, you're right. It's as though she wouldn't be free from him any other way. I cringed through that whole sequence when they were kind of showing their engagement and everything because it was so like, I can't imagine anything more soul deadening than being in a quote unquote loving relationship where you just don't have it for the person. You know, it turns that person into a monster to you. (laughs) And honestly, I thought we might get more with him. I liked that last moment though that he appeared in where they're standing by the fire and she's just kind of she's just kind of like, I've had it with your shit. You know what I mean? Is the way that moment felt to me like right. she can kind of break up with him at that point. But he didn't exactly go away. He didn't exactly disappear. The last time we see him, he's still standing there with her. It's like she'll never leave him. But she finally has put him in the compartment where she's like, all right, enough. You're dead. Let me move on. It really did feel like there was going to be more to that, because I think she says something like it's just you and me now when they're at the campfire. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, and, and then the scene changes. I was thinking, I guess we'll circle back to this and see whatever conversation they have that hopefully banishes him from haunting her. But then nothing happens. So what did you two think of the unrequited romance between or semi-requited, I suppose, romance between Hannah and Owen? I loved it. I did, too. My heart. I loved them. He was so sweet. He was an eye zombie, which is terrible, but he was always consistently good. So I'm happy to see him in something better. <laughs> but yeah, the, the silly dad jokes, even though it's not a dad. Oh, my God. The... Alcohol later. Yeah. <sighs> I hated them so much, but I still. Oh, I love them. I hated them and I loved him for doing it anyway. That's what I'm saying. It's like they're corny. <laughs> and in another movie, you would think this guy's. You'd think this guy's supposed to be funny and he's not. But instead you go, oh, no, this guy's the sort of endearing person who you would like despite that. And I would say that by the time you get to the end, you realize he does that on purpose to almost be like, I'm going to be this person who I mean, he's the warmth in a weird way of the house. Like Miss Gross would be that, but she's a little too dislocated. He's this guy who's like somehow got such a sweet heart that he kind of knows some messed up stuff is going on. And he's just trying to be like a stabilizing force for everybody and who better than the cook i mean i loved how much him feeding people and getting them to taste stuff that was like 
Yeah, it, a, a really well-conceived character. And I love the scene, again, that scene that keeps coming back around with him interviewing for the job and the way that he finally just says, look, you know, you know this isn't real. That That's just so great. The idea of being in denial about being dead, I don't know, there's just... There's something true about that. I've never been dead, but it feels it feels there's some verisimilitude to that idea of ghostliness that you would be like you're unable to accept. Like, wait a minute, surely there's some way I can I can jump back into that body and start moving again, or surely there's some way that that dead body's not me. I didn't think we'd get an explanation for why they were trapped, and I definitely I I can't remember the order things were shown in, but the loops and the dream skipping, or or I think that's what they called it. Yeah. Um. I definitely did not really understand what was happening there for a while. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I think it took me until we saw Hannah by the well before I realized what was happening to Hannah, because I really yeah, to realize think... that the first time we saw her, she had just died. Yeah, that was insane. Like yeah. literally the second we meet her, <laughs> mm-hmm. she had just died. Um, but yeah, we I, I can't remember, but I think we saw some of the loops with the ghosts before that. That, but I could be wrong. Um, but seeing that keep happening to Hannah and the way they can kind of interact, it's like they're it's like a lucid dream. Basically, they interact. They know they're in a dream, but they go through motions anyway. Mm-hmm. I had absolutely no clue why that was happening. And I, I really was believing the way they were setting it up, like she might have Alzheimer's mm-hmm. because we saw that exact thing happen with Owen's mother. That's true. I gotta say that moment was one of the only things that I felt and I was a little sleepy maybe when that episode the fourth episode where they're all by the fire and he tells this talks about his mom. I liked that in theory, but I felt like I did not because I never saw his mother and I never met his mother. It felt like that that fourth episode was when it started to test me in terms of like how invested I am I in this story? What's really going on here? I like this Owen guy, but I don't know that I care enough about what he's talking about because I haven't seen his care it was like a long monologue especially when there is so much going on that you want to know and then you get to hear a lot about something that you don't necessarily care all that much about right like it was yeah it was really beautiful speech and the way he described his mother was so lovely but then the same thing happens with the gardener where we get a whole lot of her backstory mm-hmm. where it just felt like a little like it went on a little too long for me because me I'm like, I already love you. You're fucking awesome. You don't need to sell me on you anymore. I'm already on board. Um, the backstory is interesting, but uh, it it felt like one of those things that was a little unnecessary to, to be so much of it. Well, it's like if someone was telling you a story about their life and then they say, and then I turned eight and you'd be like, yeah, oh shit, you're just eight in this story. <laughs> oh my God, that's what I was doing or that monologue. Like, can you just shut up and kiss already? Right. Well, you could tell that Danny Clayton was thinking the same thing. She was like, this is interesting, but I kind of came out here to snog. <laughs> yeah, the second JB stopped talking, she kissed her. I'm like, yes, finally. What did you think of the era that they set it in? I struggled to kind of figure out what the deal was with setting it in the 80s for a while um aside from just you know some questionable clothing choices well she doesn't have mirrors she covers her mirrors if you notice that like, that's, that's one true thing. that's true i think if everyone had covered their mirrors in the 80s it would have made 80s hair and clothing a little bit easier to live with <laughs> um i think the only conclusion that i could come to for setting it in the 80s was that it was modern and enough for like some plot points, but backwards enough for others. So like with regards to Danny's queerness, that was still a like, even though it's recent, we all 
Oh no, I wasn't alive in 1987. Um, I was almost alive. But anyway, like at that point in time, like you were clawing towards existence in the void. (laughs) I was working on it. Actually, depending at what point in 1987, I was at least cellular. Um, But I've always said that about you. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Means so much. She's at least cellular. That's the that's the only th- uh, conclusion I could come to was that it was like modern enough for some of the interactions that they had um, and some of the like, I guess, belief in ghosts and stuff. But then like uh, backwards enough for that, like gay subplot. I don't think that would have worked as much if it was just like this day. But I also think there's a technological element. You know, there's no Internet. There's no cell phones. It's just I think the 80s feel more scary for that reason. Yeah, that's right. The prank calls are coming through a landline. Mm hmm. Yeah. Before Star 69. It takes me out of stuff when I see a character Googling something. Like, I don't want to see that. So if it was set in absolute modern day and they're Googling, like, people that died at Bly Manor and solving it that way, I feel like that's so much less interesting than just it it feels like you're a lot more cut off information wise with what the past was at that point. But then I also I'm I'm glad that they said it at that time and not further back. Um because I feel like it's a lot easier to relate to seeing people in the 80s than like in the innocence seeing people during that time frame. And even, even reading the book, I'm like some of the things I'm like, I don't know what this word means. I don't know the context for what this is, for who this person is, for the social cues of that time. I just really don't know it. So I can't feel as invested as I would if I'm like, OK, I understand what I mean. I was you know, slightly more alive than Kelly, but not by a whole lot in the 80s. But I, I at least have a lot better context for what the world was like at that time. She was cellular. You were at least globular. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what, what year was the set in? Was 87. 87. Okay, I was one. To, to 2007 was the, the wraparound was 2007. Gotcha. Um, but I also, I thought it was a really nice touch. The kids, especially Flora, felt very old timey to me. Yes. Like even for the 80s, they don't have a Game Boy. They don't have a little Atari. They're not listening to music on a boombox. You know, they didn't have Legos everywhere or Star Wars figures or anything that would have set them in time. You know, like Miles had a little bit of like he had a poster for Star Trek or something. And I was like, that almost feels strange because everything else just feels so like Victorian, like this girl in a long nightgown playing with a dollhouse. It doesn't really feel like something that would necessarily happen in the mid 80s or, you know, Mm -hmm. mid to late 80s. Like when I was a little kid, I had paper dolls. And even then that felt like, you know, (laughs) a little bit strange (laughs) for 1990. Did you like, I know, Kelly, you said you thought they kind of muffed the ending, but I also thought story wise, the idea that Danny is haunted by this thing that there's no escape from and that then she ultimately is very empowered, it seems, because when she returns to Bly Manor, she has changed the whole makeup of what's going on there. Like, you know, I so I think there's power in her character's fate, but it's unfortunate that they had to sort of trip over that ugly cliche of you can't have gay people happy on screen unless it's about to be a tragedy. I agree. I think I mean, there was purpose in her death rather than just like kind of a fridging um, yeah. sad thing to happen to the person who survives. Um, and it was kind of a good representation of like being in a partnership and watching someone suffer through a long disease or like a severe mental illness kind of as you're going through the period of the relationship where they are happy and together. Um, so like it was well done. It just, yeah, it just seems like anytime there are queer characters, one of them's going to die. I feel like we've got 
David and Patrick from Schitt's Creek and nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's it's better done. Like it's less of offensive in in this way because they have spent an entire series building these two characters up and fleshing them out and giving them stuff to do. And like Danny's death is purposeful. It, she basically takes the place of the Lady of the Lake, which means no one else is going to die because Danny wouldn't do that. Right. So like there, it's it's better than that. It just was like a little disappointing, yeah. but not not entirely like worthless, if that makes any sense. Is there anything else we haven't touched on that one of you wanted to mention? A character or even just a, a, a note, a line, a little, a little scare, something that really sticks with you? I just have um, one thought that I was just a little confused by. So when they do first introduce the gardener they say something like um she didn't introduce herself and everyone already assumed that they met and it felt like they had and i was like oh is there some weird spooky connection here is the gardener gonna end up being the ghost that she keeps seeing because we hadn't seen him yet but then like the next scene we see that it's obviously not right um but they they never really explain why she just kind of walks in the room and doesn't introduce herself after making a note of it mm -hmm. so i don't i was thinking like maybe it's just demonstrating how much chemistry they have right off the bat but it, it just seemed weird to call that out and then not ever explain it or have it be significant what did did you notice that what or do you have an idea of what that was about I think it was just supposed to be like a chemistry thing. It was kind of like what we were talking about, about being a little too heavy handed. I think that could have been set up just by the gardener walking in, doing her thing. And then like they cut to Danny and the look that she has, which is clearly like, a oh, this this is a cute gal. And so I don't think they needed to say that at all. But I, I do think it was just um, setting up their immediate connection. Gotcha. What about you, Kelly? Anything? I know you you did some research. I, I, I definitely don't want to yes. cut short any any cool observations you might have. <laughs> I threw some of them in there. I basically like spawned by um, the origin of the Lady of the Lake in episode eight. Just kind of went down a rabbit hole of other Henry James um, horror stories and um, found that they used a lot of them to flesh things out just from like the namings of characters to like whole episodes, like the um, the whole uh, romance of certain old clothes um that that episode about the lady in the lake uh kept pretty close to it uh henry wingraves shit grinning monster the jolly corner is the name of the episode and the short story um danny's ex um is his name is edmund and um there's a short story called sir edmund ormy which is about a man betrothed to a woman who he can see like a dead man following her mm -hmm. the whole time and i think Edmund is the name of the ghost. Ah. And then there's another story, which I think Owen's name maybe comes from, but not his story. Um, there's a, another story that was actually turned into an opera and it's called Owen Wingrave. But I think it's actually a story about like homosexuality. So you can actually kind of get Danny's backstory from it a little bit, but then just the name Owen is attributed to um, Rahul Coley's cook character and i also kind of was clocking and maybe you guys did too because we all watched the innocence all of the references to the movie it almost felt like it was just as much of a kind of a loving uh tribute to the movie as it was the book like the whole dead bird thing didn't happen in the book but it happened in the movie um mm -hmm. danny's last name clayton that's the director's last name that's jack clayton yeah that was a fun little easter egg but until we reconvene for uh skirt book club um 
where can people find you online? We did not mention your podcast, CD Reads, at the top of the show. So maybe maybe tell the listeners a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, you can find me and Kelly's podcast, CD Reads, at uh, cactusrodeo.com or wherever you find podcasts. I don't remember where it is, but it's in some places. And you can hear <laughs> um, me and Kelly will read a book and discuss it on the show. I'm not good at explaining things to make it sound interesting. It's I more mean, interesting than that. That was correct, though. Yeah. We talk about books. Um, they're <laughs> usually kind of horny, um, but not exclusively books. We did a video game recently. So yeah. really? We did it uh, wherever dating you simulator. Can find, whatever medium you can find uh, weird horniness where they're sniffing it out. Ugh, sorry. Ew. <laughs> <laughs> I regretted that. Just a little taste of the it. horrible even... things you'll hear on our show. <laughs> That's true. I... I I say a lot of things I regret as soon as they come out of my mouth. So it's probably why we get along. <laughs> oh boy, I love that music from uh, the Haunting of Blind Manor. That's one thing we didn't really talk about is how good the music was. It was uh, a lot of the same themes from The Haunting of Hill House and the same musicians behind it, the, the Newton Brothers. And that song you're hearing right now is probably my favorite melody. Um, it's called Go Tomorrow in the Haunting of Hill House soundtrack. And this reprise is called Love Story. Um, just great. Anyway, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Gianni W, G-I-A-N-N-I-D-U-B-Y-A. Uh, you can find more episodes of this podcast and others like it on the FYIZ podcast feed. So just look for FYIZ wherever you get your podcasts. That's for now. We should probably get out of here. I love that stuff where the room she's in turns out to be the chest. Oh, my God. That whole sequence of the she sleeps, she wakes, she walks like, yeah, I, I almost I think there's there's a there's got to be a screen grab of that. That's like a perfect comment on COVID era uh, life. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Because we sleep, we wake, we pay snack. It's too real. <laughs>